Uh, we are continuing in Matthew 13, but let me remind you a little bit about where we're at. Matthew is structured around five main discourses, five main teaching sections of Jesus, and uh, all of them so far have been directed to the disciples. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, it was first and foremost directed to the disciples. If you remember Matthew 10, that was the second discourse, and that was directed also to the disciples and their commission in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the world. And now we get to the middle of five. And like we said in the introduction to this section, really this is kind of, in terms of the discourses, this is the, the, the turning point one. This is the focal point of all five. And you might say, well, why is that? Why is this one, especially the one with the parables, the focal point? Well, remember the context, Matthew 11 and 12 Jesus and his generation of Israel have mutually rejected one another. They, they have uh, not repented. Uh, the crowds are still interested. They like to see Jesus' miracles. They uh, kind of like what he's saying, but uh, there's no commitment. They are not disciples. They are not repenting. And so it comes to a head at the end of chapter 12, and Jesus says, that's it. It's over. It's over for this generation. What's, what, what were John and Jesus and his disciples proclaiming? Remember, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And remember, Matthew as a whole is the gospel of the kingdom. It's talking about the king. Who is the king? It's Jesus. Uh, it's talking about what is the nature of this kingdom, and what's it going to look like uh, with Jesus coming and then also, how do you live in light of the kingdom? And that's very important to remember as we enter the parables, and especially as we enter this next batch of parables, because really this next batch of parables is talking about the nature of the kingdom of the heavens, especially now that Israel has rejected that message of repentance. We said, uh, I think last week, the question is, what now? What's going to happen now? And as we said, as we walk through this section, and we saw last week that what, is Jesus re- what Jesus is relaying in the parables is secrets of the kingdom of heaven, things that God has always planned and always known. Uh, he's always planned it this way, but now they get revealed. Now they get disclosed. They were secrets, but now it's disclosing these secrets in parables, parables that uh, uh, what's a parable? It's a comparison between everyday life kind of stuff and uh, true and profound realities. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and as we saw last week in that section, he's saying that for the crowds, they get half of it. They, get the, they still get revelation, they still get the parable, but they don't get the explanation. Only the disciples do, because Jesus is confer- the, the crowds have been hardened, they haven't repented, and now Jesus, through the parables, is confirming their hardness. It's an act of judgment to remove clarity uh, to the crowds. That doesn't mean that individuals from the crowds can't cross from being in the crowds to being a disciple. They still can through repentance. So Jesus even tells his parables to stir their minds up, to get them to think about uh, what he's saying, and if they pursue it, they meditate on it, then yes, they can change. They can change, they can repent, they can trust themselves to Christ, they can change from being of the crowd to being of a disciple. So what we saw last week is this parable of the sower. And in that parable, Jesus is describing the secret of the kingdom of why so many, why so many in his ministry, the greatest teacher with all the miracles, 
being present, why so many rejected him? And he said, well, it's really ultimately the condition of the heart. Remember the different soils that uh, we have the hard soil where uh, they, they just don't understand at all. Uh, the idea of, of um, the scriptures, the idea of Isaiah is that you need to hear and understand. Understand not just mentally, but understand in terms of acting on what you hear. And so you've got the hard soil that uh, they don't understand at all. Then you've got the uh, rocky soil where they understand and they have a lot of enthusiasm, but they die off because of persecution or hardship because of the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom. And then you've got the weeds that choke out, that choke out uh, this, this understanding, this germination that was happening in that soil. And none of those three soils were fruitful. None of those three soils were ultimately disciples or part of what God was doing. Only the good soil, only the good soil, the soil that God had prepared. Because even Jesus says in Matthew 11, the Father's hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Last week was all about hearing. And hearing not just with the ears, but understanding, acting on that. And ultimately that comes from God. And ultimately that comes through repentance and faith and trusting Christ. Now, as we get into the next section and next batch of the parables, remember we talked, there's a lot of structure in these. And the next six parables are going to start something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like, da, 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 da. Well, let's talk about the kingdom for a second. What's, what's going on in these parables is that Jesus is going to tell us about the nature of the kingdom now that he's been rejected. Well, let's talk about what the expectation was in the Old Testament, because you really need to understand what the expectation was in the Old Testament to understand how Jesus is dovetailing in with that, how he's connecting with that. And to that end, let's go ahead and turn briefly to Daniel 2. We read Daniel 2 a couple weeks ago to describe this idea of mysteries, the idea of a mystery as something that's been hidden, that God has always planned, and then he's going to reveal. We talked about that idea. We see it in Daniel 2, and don't worry, we're not going to reread the whole chapter, uh, but, but I want to draw your attention to Daniel 2, 31 and following, because what's going on in Daniel, and, and Matthew as a whole draws from Daniel substantially, substantially, what you see in Daniel 2 is essentially the summary and how the New Testament leaves off of what the coming of the kingdom is going to be like. So let's pick up in Daniel 2, 31. This will set the stage for us as we enter Jesus' parables. So Daniel's speaking, and he says, You saw, O king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the, this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. 
See, this is kind of like the parables where you get some revelation, but it's mysterious. It's not fully understood until you have a wise interpreter. And in this case, that's Daniel. This was the dream. Now we will tell the kings its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the kingdom of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes and feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. And what that portrays we know this, right, that Nebuchadnezzar, he's the head of the Babylonian Empire. By and large, he rolls a great swath of the earth. He's this human that at that time, God is allowed to sit over this massive throne, this massive empire. And it's sort of like God's original plan. God's original plan for the kingdom was that his chosen king, starting with Adam and then eventually through the Davidic line, would sit on a throne over the whole world. That was his plan for the kingdom. But then we see these distortions and guys like Nebuchadnezzar and then these other kingdoms that come, and then what happens? God's kingdom comes, the kingdom from the heavens. That's that imagery, this stone. Uh, it's a divine kingdom. It's cut by no human hands, and it comes where? From the heavens and smashes the feet of the statue, destroying all these human-made kingdoms. And what happens with that big old stone? It grows. It grows into a mountain that fills the earth. So that's the expectation from the Old Testament. We get this picture of God's kingdom from the heavens. That's what Daniel really, or that, that's what Matthew really means. That's what Jesus really means and is alluding to when he says the kingdom of the heavens. It's really the kingdom from the heavens. The kingdom that's going to come down from the heavens and merge with earth and, and have God's original plan for his king ruling over the whole world. Ultimately, the Messiah on a throne in Jerusalem reigning over all the world. That's the expectation coming out of the Old Testament. And basically what Jesus is doing in Matthew 13 then, as he goes further into these parables, is he's, this is the same kingdom he announced. The kingdom, uh, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It hadn't arrived yet in its fullness, but it's close. Jesus is giving kingdom foretaste, but he gets rejected. So now what? Well, Jesus through his parables is going to tell us what. It's going to dock and link in with what we just saw in Daniel 2. 
And so what is going on in the parables, we said this at the outset, is a large part of the application of this chapter is understanding, knowledge. If you understand the way things really are, then you will live properly in light of the way things are. And so really the main idea for this section from Matthew 13, 24 through verse 43 is this, understand that the kingdom coming from heaven will start in a small way, gradually growing to permeate the world until its final establishment. That is the main idea of this next batch of parables. Understand that the kingdom coming from heaven will start in a small way, gradually growing to permeate the world until its final establishment. And there's three parts to this. And, uh, from verses 24 to 43, you can see that Matthew is intentionally structuring this because... We start with the parable of the tares, or the darnel, and then we end with an explanation of that parable, uh, and that structures this section. In other words, those two, the, the, the parable itself and then its explanation function as bookends of all the stuff in the middle. It's like a sandwich. So that's why we need to take verses 24 through 43 all together. I will tell you that we will not get through all of verses, all these verses this week, but we will get started. But what we need to know going into it is that it's a package. It's a package, and we need to understand it like a package. So let's first see the first section, which is this. Here, remember, we, there's this key language we saw last week of hearing and understanding. And Jesus is talking to the crowds, and first what we need to do is hear the parables of the coming kingdom for the crowds. Hear the parables of the coming kingdoms for the crowds. Verses 34 through 35 will understand the purpose of the parables for the crowds, and then we will, in verses 36 through 43, understand the parables of the coming kingdom. So we need to hear first, and then we will understand once Jesus explains that to his disciples. But let's start with the hearing part. Look at verse 24. He put another parable before them. Now, who's the them? He was just talking to the disciples, so you might expect, oh, he's talking to the disciples again. And that's not a bad conclusion, and it is true that he is talking to the disciples, but we find out in verse 34 this, all these things Jesus said to the crowds. So really what happened is verses 13, uh, 1 through 9 last week, Jesus is talking to the crowds and then we had this kind of parenthesis from verse 10 through verse 23, where he's talking to the disciples. And now it's like we jump back in right after he finished the parable of the sower, and we are getting him talking to the crowds again. So he's talking to the crowds. He put another parable before them, the crowds, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, a couple notes. Like I said, the next six parables are going to start somewhat like that. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. This first one, though, is a little bit different because it actually says something more like this. The kingdom of heaven uh, has become like. In other words, not only is Jesus comparing the kingdom to something, but there's been a change that just happened recently such that that promotes the image that he is giving in this parable. And in context, that would be the rejection that we saw in Matthew 11 and 12. So he's saying, well, because of that, that just happened, the kingdom of heaven has become 
like this, like this, that he's going to relay in this parable. Another thing you note, boy, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds very familiar to the parable of the sower. It's going to be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That's what we had last week, didn't we? Uh, What you're going to see as we walk through these parables is that there's kind of a storyline, sort of, throughout. Or maybe another way to think about it, it's a different angle on looking at things. So there's going to be things that are similar, and there's going to be things that are different. What's the similarity? Well, um, parable of the sower and this, you've got a farmer, a sower. Uh, You remember I was trying to illustrate um, a sower last week, and then someone pointed out, you know, you could have just pointed to that guy right there. Yeah, that's the sower, right? He's, he's got a bag of grain, and then he's tossing it out into a field. And so we saw the good, you know, what that crop looked like last week. So that's similar. Guy's going out, he's sowing seed into the field. But there's a difference. There's a difference already. You sowed good seed in his field. Now, last week, the goodness was about the soil. This week, the goodness is about the seed. So there's similarities and there's differences. And if you wanted to think about it, Jesus is reminding us of the last parable, of the parable of the sower, but then he's also getting us to shift, subtly, our focus onto the good crop, onto the good seed. Uh, so there's, there's a development, if you will, between, uh, between the two. And let's see how this develops. Oh, one other thing. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, we've already said that's like the kingdom from heaven. There's a movement, right? If you're talking about the kingdom of heaven, you're talking about the kingdom that's coming down from heaven, the kingdom that's going to come from heaven. So the kingdom doesn't represent any one thing in the parable. It, uh, it corresponds to the whole situation. And that's what you need to know. He starts off by comparing it to a man sowing, but the kingdom's not the man sowing. It's the whole situation that's going to be relayed in the parable. So keep that in mind as we walk through this. But while his men were sleeping, so the man goes out, he sows good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. Now, uh, what is this weeds? Um, It's not just any old weed. Uh, A lot of people have done work on trying to identify what this kind of weed is. We find out later it looks an awful lot like wheat until it sprouts grain. It's probably the, uh, the weed called Darnell. Darnell. Now, Darnell is, it looks an awful lot like wheat. Even when it bears heads of grain, it looks an awful lot like wheat. It looks very, very similar. But when it bears heads of grain, you can tell the difference. Problem is, is Darnell is poisonous. So it is a very bad thing to have in your crop. Now, at that time, you, you couldn't avoid some weeds in your your, your seed wheat that you're throwing out. But uh, this is different because we see an enemy coming in and he sowed darnel among the wheat and went away. Literally, it's like the farmer sowed his field and at night, the word is literally, he, the enemy sowed on top of that. He sowed right on top of the wheat with this darnel, this lookalike, this lookalike weed. He sowed it among the wheat and went away. Now let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about the motivation of the enemy. This is a really cunning way to undermine your neighbor because, uh, one, he does it very stealthily. He can't see it. You're not going to be able to tell the difference between the two and the seeds. Uh, the farmer's just going to go along the business uh, but until it's too late, until we find out in just a minute that that darnel is going to sprout. And by that time, what happens 
is that it's too late. Uh, they're all intertwined, they're all together, and you've essentially poisoned your neighbor's field. Because if you harvest all that, the darnel is going to be mixed in with the wheat. It's poisonous. You can't sell it. You can't eat it. So you got to get the darnel out. Even more so, now by sowing on top uh, the darnel over the wheat, uh, now the wheat and the darnel are competing. They're competing for resources. They're competing for sunshine and water. And so you've just greatly diminished uh, the, your enemy's uh, your enemy's crop. This is a very cunning way to do this. Verse 26. So when the plants came up, and this is the idea of the grass, the grass of the wheat and of the darnel comes up, and then we get the next development, and it bore grain. So now the heads show themselves, and it's really only when you see the heads that, and the type of grain or fruit or produce that's being born, then it becomes apparent that this is Darnell. The Darnell appeared also. And so what happens, verse 27, the servants or the slaves, so this, this guy is, he's a, he's a, we find out he owns a lot of property. He's got slaves. He's got a big old household that can help him out. So the slaves, his workers, come up to him and say, uh, to the master of the house, they come to him and say, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? And they're expecting that he has, that the master has good seed that he took from uh, to sow this field. How then, or really from where, from where did this Darnell come from? Uh, okay, master, we know that you did your diligence in getting this seed. Maybe you bought it. Maybe you just saved it over from the last, um, from the last harvest. But we know, we are expecting that you sowed good seed, and we know that the, uh, the, the master sowed good seed. But the question is, where did this Darnell come from? Where did this Darnell come from? Verse 28, he said to them correctly, surmises and concludes this, an enemy has done this. So then the servants, they come up with a logical uh, 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 a strategy. You've got to get the Darnell out. The whole crop is worthless unless you get the Darnell out. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? See, at this point, uh, you can tell the difference. You can. Uh, the heads have sprouted, so you can tell the difference between the wheat and the darnel. And so uh, the, the slaves are like, well, we got to get the darnel out. Why don't we just take care of this problem right now? I mean, if we get the darnel out, then at least whatever remains of the wheat isn't competing with the darnel for those resources of sunlight and water and that sort of a thing. So why don't we just get it out right now? This is not a bad idea. Verse 29, but he said, no. Lest, why not? Lest in gathering the darnel, you root up the wheat along with them. Problem is, you've got these plants sowed right on top of each other. Their root systems are intertwined. So you go out yanking out darnel, you're going to yank out wheat. And yeah, you already have a diminished crop already because of the darnel, but you're going to make it even worse by yanking out the darnel because it's going to uproot some wheat along with it. Well, so what's the best strategy at this point? Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the darnel first and bind it in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
And this is the best strategy. It really is, right? You got to get the Darnell out, but let the wheat grow up to its maturity, its mature level. Let it grow up to that. And then at harvest time is the optimal time to separate them. Because now the wheat's done its thing, so it's going to get whatever crop he's going to get out of it. You're not going to, now you're going to harvest it anyway. You're not going to worry about uprooting the wheat anymore. So we're going to get rid of the Darnell. And he deals with it first. It's such a horrible thing. He deals with it first and he burns it, right? It's just worthless stuff. It's poisonous. It's just going to get burned. And then the wheat's going to get gathered into the barn. It's going to get gathered into the barn. That is the parable of the Darnell. And what you need to get at this point is just the imagery, right? Just like the crowds, you just need to get the imagery. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about Jesus' teaching and about his parables is, like, it's everyday stuff, but some of it's kind of disturbing, and some of it kind of grabs you a little bit. Like, huh, this is really disturbing to have this Darnell in the field. What are you going to do about it? And it's even kind of weird that the master leaves it till the end to deal with it, and that's intentional. So just have that imagery in mind. But we're going to move on to the next parable. And you're like, wait, 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 aren't you going to explain it? No. Because Jesus doesn't explain it yet. And the text doesn't explain it yet. Like we said, we got the parable of the Darnell first, and then its explanation later. And everything in between is supposed to be sandwiched together. Or put it this way, you're not going to understand the, the parables that we're looking at, the next couple, they come as a package with the parable of the Darnell. And what's going to be great is when Jesus explains the parable of the Darnell, you're also going to be able to get the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. They go together. They're a package deal. So we've got the imagery of the parable of the Darnell. Let's go on to the parable of the mustard seed. He put another parable before them, and again, this is the crowds, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Now let's pause. It's like, hey, this is deja vu. It's the same thing again, right? They got a guy going out sowing, sowing stuff into his field. There's the field, there's the sowing, there's the grain, except what's the difference this time? Instead of a whole bunch of grain into a field, it's one. It's one, and in fact, it's a very tiny one because Jesus says, verse 32, it is the smallest of all seeds, all the seeds that you would have access to and sow. Some people make a quibble, yeah, there's a smaller seed somewhere in the world. And it's like, that, oh my goodness, really? <laughs> no, the smallest of all the seeds that you would have access to and that you would sow in your, your, um, your field, okay? And it's tiny. Like, uh, pro and again, people debate about, well, what kind of mustard plant is this? It's probably at least a seed. It, it, the mustard seed was proverbially small. It's probably less than a millimeter in diameter. So this thing's tiny. This thing's tiny. Now, you've got a lot of similarity, right? The person's going out and they're sowing and they're sowing in a field, but this time all of the seed has essentially been collapsed into a very, very tiny seed. The imagery has shifted. It's similar, but it's different. It's smaller than all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants or the garden herbs and has become a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 
So you imagine this guy going out in his field, and this thing's tiny. He's got one. He's got one, which is kind of weird, isn't it? He's got one of these things. And as soon as you put it into the ground, you're not going to find that thing again, are you? It's a millimeter or less in diameter. You're plugging it in there, and it's like, I can't find it again, even if I wanted to. But then what happens is ultimately, inevitably, it grows, and it grows into this tree. And again, people debate about, well, what kind of mustard plant is this? You know, is this really a lot of the mustard plants in Palestine are more bushes, and they maybe get to, you know, four, six feet in diameter. Maybe on the upper end, you might have a tree nine feet but Jesus, this is kind of weird, uh, this, this, and that's part of the strangeness, right? There's some strangeness to these. The weird part is the size of this tree. This thing turns into a monster of a, a tree. That's not normal for mustard seed trees, and that's part of the point. In fact, uh, we'll talk about this when we explain the parables, but some of the language he uses is reminiscent of Old Testament parables, um, see that language there, the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches? If you were paying attention, or the crowd was paying attention, they would say, hey, that sounds like Ezekiel 17, where there's like this um, branch from the line of David that gets uh, planted, and then it turns into this big giant tree. And then you know it's giant because the birds of the air, which represent the nations, come and nest in the tree. And that happens also, that same language happens with Assyria. Assyria gets described as this big, giant, massive tree that birds of the air come and nest in the branches. And even Daniel 4, we've got a Daniel 4 uh, thing going on here, where Nebuchadnezzar is likened to this big old tree, and birds of the air come and nest in the branches. So this is unusual in the parable. It's, it's familiar in the sense of the Old Testament reference, but it's unusual for a mustard tree to grow that large. Uh, it's unheard of. And so that's part of the strangeness of the parable that's supposed to grab your attention. You got something itty-bitty, and then it grows into something monstrous, even for its own, own, uh, own species. And that's the parable of the mustard grain. Next parable. Again, what are we trying to get here? We're trying to get the imagery sunk into our minds. We're trying to hear just this raw data, like the crowds, before we get to an interpretation. The interpretation is coming, but you're not going to get the interpretation right until you get the interpretation of the parable of the Darnell, because they're bundled together. Next parable, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, maybe you have in your mind leaven is like, um, uh, you know, like you go to the store and you buy your little package of yeast and, you, you know, you dump your yeast in and your bread rises. That's not this kind of leaven. This kind of leaven is actually something else you're probably familiar with, sourdough. Sourdough, you have your little sourdough starter in your like little container on your counter or in the fridge or wherever. And what is sourdough? It's, it's bread uh, or it's flour mixed with water that's fermented with natural yeast in the air, uh, natural, uh, natural organisms. And what you would do to make bread at this time, leavened bread, is that you would take some of your sourdough starter and you would fold it into your moistened bread dough. And then eventually you would, you know, your bread would rise 
it would double or however much it you know, grew from that leavening process until you were ready to bake. That's how you made leavened bread in that time. You didn't go to the, down to uh, you know, uh, Joe's uh, Hebrew Kmart and buy yourself a little you know, package of yeast and pour it in there. It doesn't happen, right? So you got to understand that because you got to understand the imagery. Uh, what's also very strange, um, three measures of flour. The, the, the word is uh, Satan. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with Satan. That's not where I'm going, okay? Um, it, this is a me- unit of measure. This is a unit of measure in that time, in that world. And people debate because measures change from times in different areas and all of that. People debate about how big this was. Let me cut to the chase. Basically, we're talking like 50 to 60 pounds of flour. So this is a lot. This is a lot of flour um, to be dealing with. And that's part of the strangeness, right? And even the way it's described is what the woman is doing. What's she doing? She's taking some of her starter and she's hiding it. She's concealing it into uh, these three measures, these 50 to 60 pounds of flour. This is enough when it's all leavened. This is probably enough to feed 100 people. That's what people estimate. 100 or more people. We're talking a lot of dough here, a, a huge baking process, okay? Which again... We're just trying to get the imagery down before we get to the interpretation. Uh, what do you see here, right? Well, what, uh, well we, uh, there's similarities and there's differences with the uh, previous two or previous three parables. What's similar? Well, the action of sowing into a field seems very similar, doesn't it, to taking some starter and putting it into this big, big giant batch of dough. That's a similar sort of action. So there's similarity there. Uh, It's different because it's not even so much about the size in this case, unlike the the mustard seed. Um, Or, you know, maybe there's some idea of mixture, like you saw in the uh, parable of the Darnell. But it's mainly uh, this idea of permeation. That's what happens with the leavening process. You start in one spot, it permeates the whole thing until it does what it needs to do, and you can bake it. That is the parable of leaven. Again, we're, once we understand the interpretation of the Darnell, which Jesus hasn't gotten to yet, we'll be able to understand all three. Remember what he does with the parables. He explained this last week. Uh, the par- parable is a comparison, but Jesus, for the crowds, is only giving one half of it. He's giving one, all of this, what we just heard, essentially what we just thought about, he's giving that to the crowds because parables are like a one-way mirror. If you're in the crowds and you look at the parable, you're, not, it's, you're going to have a hard time seeing things. And you're going to have a hard time seeing the reality behind them. If you're in the other side of the one-way mirror with the disciples and Jesus, then you get some explanations and things become clear. So he gives the one side of the one-way mirror to the crowds. So we've gotten the imagery, we've heard the parables of the coming kingdom for the crowds. Somehow this is supposed to relate to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom coming from heaven. Well, we've got the imagery, and that's all so far. And then next, we get Matthew talking again. And what we need to see in this next section in verses 34 and 35 is that you need to understand the purpose of the parables for the crowds. We were just kind of talking about that, weren't we? And we've already saw it last week in Matthew 13, 10 through 17. But there's a little bit of a difference here. 
And so we need to follow Matthew, and we need to understand the purpose of the parables of the crowd. Look at verse 34. All these things. Now, what are those things? A parable of the sower, parable of the darnel, parable of the mustard grain, parable of the leaven. That's the all these things, okay? All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. He said nothing to them without a parable. What's, what's Matthew saying? He's emphasizing that this is a change, and the disciples recognized it last week. Jesus has been pretty clear with his proclamation, with his statement so far, and he's changed. And that's why they had that initial conversation with him last week, starting in Matthew 13, verse 10. And now Matthew elaborates on it a little bit more. Uh, last week, it was more about a reason, uh, something that happened in the past that was driving Jesus to do what he was doing with the parables, and we already talked about that. But this one, in this time, uh, Matthew's emphasizing, all right, Jesus is only speaking to the crowds in parables, but why, but why, Nothing he was saying without, to them without a parable. Nothing he was saying to the crowds without the parable so that it's a marker of purpose. And whose purpose? Jesus' purpose. Jesus is speaking nothing to the crowds except by a parable. Why? For what purpose? So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will spew forth what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Now, we know the drill on this. We've done this enough in Matthew that this is one of Matthew's fulfillment statements. But notice whose purpose it is. It's not Matthew's purpose, it's Jesus' purpose. Jesus has the purpose of speaking to the crowds in nothing but parables to fulfill, meaning to actualize this statement through this particular prophet. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at the Old Testament prophet. We're going to understand that context. And then we're going to understand how it, Jesus is applying it and purposing it with regard to his parables. What prophet is he talking about? The prophet Asaph. Psalm 78. So we're not going to uh, Isaiah. We're not going to Ezekiel. We're not going to Daniel. We're going to the Psalms. And we're going to Psalm 78. So you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 78 if you wish. And Psalm 78 is actually very interesting, and it's actually fairly interesting to be talking about this psalm a little bit on Father's Day, because it has very much to do with fathers and children and the coming generation. So... Um, that's kind of an added bonus, uh, I guess, for, for today. The Lord had it planned that way. Uh, but let's go ahead and start reading the first few verses. And the verse that Matthew quotes and that Jesus is purposing to fulfill is in the first few verses here. So Psalm 78, a mass skill of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now, even just there, it's like, hey, that kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it, right? He who has ears, let him hear, listen up to what I'm going to say. That kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings or riddles. 
from of old. So there, there's our quote, Psalm 78, verse 2. That's all we get a quote. But remember what we said, we've been saying this all along, whenever a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, it's not like he's just quoting that verse. He's, think, get it, he's asking you to understand the context of the whole original and then be able to bring that forward into the New Testament. So what is Asaph saying? He's saying, well, I'm going to talk to you in parables, wisdom sayings, comparisons, and he describes it another way. He says, I'm going to utter dark sayings. Riddles is the idea. Riddles from of old. They're like, okay, Asaph, so we're supposed to listen carefully to your riddles. What are the things that we're going to hear? Verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, right there, you should be kind of scratching your head a minute. It's like, wait a minute, Asaph, you just said you're going to give us a riddle, but you said we've already heard it. We've already heard these things. So he keeps going on. Verse 4, we will not hide them. That's the stuff he's going to talk about, the riddles, the parables. We're not going to hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation what? The glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. And what essentially happens, uh, well, let's, let's read a few more verses. Verse, through verse 8 is kind of the prologue to the, this psalm. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, and that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set up their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So basically, if we were to sum up Asaph's prologue, he's like, I'm going to tell you a riddle. I'm going to tell you a mystery. Um, and it's about the glorious deeds of, the, of God in view of uh, what he told us to do in passing on the law and the teaching to generation after generation uh, and what essentially Asaph then goes on to do in the rest of the psalm is recount Israel's history. This history that he recounts from, let's say, well, I mean, through verse 9 through the end of the psalm is well known to them. They've heard this a thousand times. All the things he talks about, they've heard it before. But even think back to the parables for a minute. What, is, what, is, uh, what does God want? Does he want just hearing? No, he wants understanding. And so you can have access to information. You can have clarity with regard to information. But what is Asaph doing? He's saying, you need to learn the lesson from this history. There's a reality that's going on in your history, Israel, that you need to hear and pay attention to. To what end? Well, he said in verses 7 through 8, so that you might trust God and not be rebellious and stubborn like previous generations. And basically what happens in the history is that there's an iteration over and over and over again of Israel being rebellious, of not listening, of not heeding what happened to the previous generation, uh, not obeying God's law, being rebellious, and yet God does punish them, but he brings them back and is still faithful, and he does amazing things, wondrous things to bring them back, up to and including where the psalm ends, which is the establishment of the Davidic dynasty the Davidic kingship with the temple being put in Judah, which is 
Like that's God kingdoms, God's kingdom kind of stuff. Where the psalm ends is essentially God establishing through the Davidic dynasty uh, his kingdom in Israel. So it's all about history. You could summarize it like this. Multiple generations of Israel have seen what God has done in miraculous deeds for his people despite their obedience. But by and large, they have not taken their faithlessness and God's compassionate rescue to heart to where they would break the cycle. Asaph's trying to break the cycle. You've got one generation not telling their children about here's what God has done, and the, the children aren't taking it at heart, and so it creates another cycle. Asaph's trying to break the cycle. Asaph recounts all of this history to his former generations so that they would see God's work in establishing his kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, where the psalm ends. In spite of their former generations, rebellion and trust God. That's what it's driving toward. Don't be a rebel. Trust God. The riddle in all of this is that Israel can hear its history and yet not understand it rightly and so commit the same mistakes. And what's going on in Matthew 13? Well, we just had that generation of Israel rebel. And what are the parables all about? The parables are all about history, too. Some of it is just history of what has happened even in Jesus as the ultimate Davidic king, uh, uh, hearing his own generation reject him. That was even the parable of the sower last week, right? You had all this seed, this message of the kingdom going out, but a lot of rejection. That's historical, right? Jesus is talking about history. But even more so, as he goes throughout the rest of these parables, he's talking about history. He's talking about future history. He's talking about, here's what the kingdom coming from the heavens is going to be like now. And he's telling them history. Like Asaph, Jesus is speaking parables concerning history, though a future history of the coming of the kingdom. Within those parables, Jesus does include information about Israel's rebellion to God's word and also the establishment of God's kingdom through himself as the Davidic king. For those willing to listen and meditate and inquire, the information is there, just like Israel's history. The information is there in the parables that would lead to repentance and trust. Just like for Asaph's Israel, their history was known to them, and yet it did not lead to understanding repentance and trust. Thus, Jesus actualizes, he fulfills, Asaph's role through his own parables of future history for his generation. It's fairly complex, but if you were to boil it down, it's all about history. Are you going to pay attention, Israel and crowds, to your former history and what God has done and his saving work through your history, even bringing about the promises of the kingdom and actualizing that with, in an initial way with David and the temple in Jerusalem? And are you going to learn from it? Are you going to not merely hear, but understand? Are you going to listen? Are you going to trust and not rebel? That's the purpose that Jesus has in speaking the parables. He's giving them revelation. They're riddles. And they're there they're to conceal and to reveal. They're there to conceal from the crowds as a whole, but if you're an individual in the crowds, 
And if you listen, if you inquire and you think about it and you ask God for understanding and you come to Jesus for understanding, then you can understand the riddle and you can understand what God is doing in history and you can live in light of it and you can, un- you can understand. You can not only hear, but understand. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's where we're going to end today. Now, there's application for us, don't worry. So we can talk about that. But, yeah, we're leaving on a cliffhanger. You're used to that. TV likes to do that. Let's do it too. Um, but what's the application even so far for us? Hearing and understanding, it's the same thing we talked about last week. You can have all the data. You can have all the data of history. Uh, You can see God's acts in history. Uh, You could have all the data of the Gospels. You could have that history. We have that history, right, of what Jesus has done, who he is, what he's doing. It's all there. It's right out in the open. Are you going to understand And remember, understanding doesn't just mean, I've got it, I solved the riddle, I've got it mentally locked down. It's biblical understanding means you act on it. You act on it. What does acting on it look like for Jesus' generation? It means repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, try to stop living for yourself, stop trying to interpret reality for yourself, We were never designed to interpret reality on our terms. We were always designed to come to God for understanding. How do you... You can have all of the gospel. You can have the knowledge that Jesus came to die for people's sins, that people are under God's judgment. We are all under God's judgment and deserve his wrath because our sin is a personal offense against an infinitely holy God and deserves his eternal wrath justly. And yet God sent his son to become man so that he might die in place of his people's sin so that for any who would repent and entrust themselves to him, they could understand history They could understand how God is moving in the world. That's what the parables are about. And so that they could have true life and live truly as God would have them in the world. You think about it like this. How can you understand uh, your own personal history? How can you understand anything that's going on in the world? You're not going to have the right perspective unless you come to Jesus to interpret your past, to interpret present to interpret the future. And that only comes through surrender, through surrendering and repentance, moving out of the crowds who hear everything but don't respond, to responding, to following Jesus no matter the cost so that you might understand. And notice the cosmic nature of the understanding. These are like, you look at these stories and they're like, this is kind of talking about mustard seeds and, and sowing and what's going on, but it's cosmic. It's cosmic, epic truth. And what Jesus is saying is, what are the crowds doing? They're missing it. They're missing how God has structured the world. They're missing how God is moving in the world. Why? Because they won't repent. They won't surrender, and they won't trust Christ. What about you? You have the data. And the question is not enough information. The question is, are you going to act on it? 
And really, even as we saw with the parable of the sower, and even as Jesus said in Matthew 11, you can't unless God acts first. Unless God makes your heart good soil to where you can understand and hear. So how do you start? You say, well, man, I'm not sure. Like, what's the application there for the crowds? What are the crowds supposed to do with this information? They're kind of supposed to scratch their heads, think about it, and it's like, where am I at? What is my response to Jesus? And then what? To beg God, open my eyes to see. Help me to come to Jesus. Help me to follow him, to repent and entrust myself wholly to him with no reserve, and to follow him. Because, God, I want to understand what you're doing in the world. I want to understand history and what you're going to do in future history so that I can live rightly, so I can live the life that you designed me to live. Perfect fellowship and intimacy with you. And that's the message so far from what we've seen. But next week, we'll see the explanation, and we'll get the disciples' side of it. Let's pray. Father, we pray for ears to understand. Lord, we are naturally people who cannot. We can have all the data, and yet we cannot come. So we pray for good hearts that listen and understand, and Lord, that bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for lives that are not entangled with the things of this world, but that we love Christ. Christ is our treasure. Lord Jesus, we do love you because you have died for us and that you have purchased us as a people. Help us to follow you and help us to understand. Help us to understand what you're doing in the world, what you have done and the marvelous deeds you have done and the marvelous deeds you will do and help us to live now in light of that. Lord, we can't do it apart from your strength. We ask for your grace. Lord, we pray even as Psalm 78 talks about that we would be a people that pass on what you have done as fathers and mothers and as just part of this generation to pass on to the next generation who you are and what you do because you are the amazing and awesome God and we love you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity today to celebrate fathers. Thank you for giving that structure. Thank you that you are our Father in heaven. You are so good. We love you. Help any here today who have not repented and entrusted themselves to Christ to do so even now. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. Go back to Psalm 78. I'm just going to read the first four verses again. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's our commission. Church, you are sent.